We knew that we needed to focus on all the right details. We needed to have as many of the checkbox, all the P0s, as many of them ready to go by the time we hit GA. And, and we just knew that if we were to launch something half-baked, we're just immediately going to be put in this bucket of tools that never could even get into the conversation. Welcome to In-Depth, a show that surfaces tactical advice founders and startup leaders need to grow their teams, companies, and themselves. I'm Brett Burson, a partner at First Round, and we're a venture capital firm that helps startups like Notion, Roblox, Uber, and Square tackle company building firsts. On the In-Depth podcast, we share weekly conversations with startup leaders that skip the talking points and go deeper into not just what to do, but how to do it. Learn more and subscribe today at firstround.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to In-Depth. I'm Todd Jackson, and I'm a partner here at First Round. I'm back guest hosting a new episode in our series that explores founders' different paths to product market fit. Today's episode is with Bryant Cho, co-founder and founding CTO at Webflow. Webflow has established itself as the leading no-code visual development platform for freelancers, agencies, startups, and enterprises. As you'll hear from Bryant today, Webflow had an unusual but fascinating path to product market fit. The co-founding team went against the grain on two of Silicon Valley's most trusted guidelines, ship early and often, and speak to a wide range of customers. After going through Y Combinator, the team launched a beta version of Webflow on Hacker News in 2013 that went viral. This makes their path to product market fit sound remarkably seamless. But in our conversation, we went all the way back to the beginning. We started by talking about the most important lessons in customer empathy Bryant learned from his time at Intuit and how he met his eventual co-founders, brothers Sergi and Vlad Magdalene. As the idea for Webflow became more fine-tuned, Bryant explains why he and his co-founders had such strong convictions that the freelance web design community needed a better visual design platform, even when investors were doubting their vision every step of the way. Next, we talk about the process for scaling customer feedback and some tactical frameworks Webflow used in order to get to root cause analysis. Here, Bryant has tons of advice for early stage founders and makes a strong case for when to listen to customers versus when to ignore them. Finally, we end with a remarkable story about Bryant's grandfather, who taught him the true meaning of perseverance and grit. I hope you enjoy the interview and Bryant's knack for blending storytelling with sharp tactical advice on building great products. And now, on to my conversation with Bryant. Welcome to the show, Bryant. Thanks, Todd. I'm stoked to be here. Since Webflow launched in 2013, the company has found massive success ever since the original viral announcement on Hacker News. And you've kept growing by building off your own balance sheet and tapping into true customer obsession across the entire web design community. And so now you're a Series C company, over 100 million ARR, backed by some very big names, Excel, Capital G, Y Combinator. And with over 200,000 customers now, Webflow has really established itself as the leading no-code visual development platform for freelancers, agencies, startups, enterprises. And so, Brian, I think when people look at stories like yours, they have this tendency to assume that the road to success was smooth the entire time. But we know that's never really how the journey goes. Today, I want to zoom in on those details from the early pivots you had to make, 
to your path to finding product market fit so that people can hear the lesser told side of the story. And so to kick things off, I'd love to rewind the clock to before you co-founded Webflow. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, Brian, and what you were working on before you started the company? On reflection, I think I started, I like to say, at the bottom of the stack. My first job was at Qualcomm. I was working on really low-level RF software and embedded systems and started working on storage area networks at Veritas, which was owned by Symantec. And then slowly and slowly, I just realized that I just got a lot more value building much closer to the customer. So eventually found my way to Intuit. I joined Intuit in 2008 and really cut my teeth there in Silicon Valley, just learning about how products are built, how to talk to customers, how to develop products in the right way. Kind of a lost art nowadays, but I've found a happy home building web software at Intuit. You've talked before about what you learned at Intuit and the way that they approached customer obsession. And I think a lot of that is credited to Scott Cook, one of the co-founders. Can you share more about what that looked like inside the company, Brian? My very first day at Intuit, 30 minutes of orientation, welcome to the company, here's the company handbook. And then boom, we're out the door. I was like, where are we going? And every single new hire at the time did what was called a customer follow me home. So Scott and the executive team there just thought it was just so important for new hires to just get really, really close to the customer to the point that 30 minutes into your first day on your new job, you think you're going to be firing up your development environment or setting up HR systems. No, you're actually out the door. So you're actually going to their house. Actually going to their house or their home office or their office place, literally sitting down and watching them use QuickBooks. And I was like, okay, well, this is not what I expected. And a few of us were just like, oh, this is probably not what I signed up for. I just signed up to code. But that particular experience drilled down that it's all about the customer and never lose sight of it. Fast forward a couple of years, Intuit had these concepts of idea jams. And Brad Smith, the CEO at the time, Scott Cook, they would pull together a bunch of different executives and they would have the entire company participate in these idea jams. They would set a general theme. It'd be like social, mobile, global, and they would just unleash the workforce on these themes. We care about these things. We don't care exactly what it looks like. We're going to leave it up to you because you're talking to the customers. You understand our products. You tell us what our next biggest ideas could be. That's amazing. That just left a huge imprint on me because as early career engineer, it was just like, oh, wow, these are execs that actually care about what we think. And it really unleashed the entrepreneurial spirit inside of me, actually. And so what were some of the things that were said in those meetings, in those idea jams that really reinforced the voice of the customer? It all sort of rooted in what problems we're looking to solve. So for example, if a team got up and presented in front of Scott and Scott would probably interrupt you mid-sentence, he was like, okay, this all sounds great. Beautiful product, great execution. But what problem are you looking to solve? What is the customer pain point? Sometimes people would have a good answer and sometimes people would come like, oh yeah, actually we might need to take a step back here. And that kind of rooted everyone in 
this type of customer empathy all the way from ideation, all the way through the execution phases of the product. And those are simple questions. What are you building and why is it important? And what is that pain point? Everything that we're doing ties back to the customer. And so how did you get from Intuit to then starting the idea around Webflow? I believe that you met your co-founder Vlad at Intuit. Is that right? Yep, that's right. So we met in 2008. Vlad had already been at Intuit a year or two. He's a couple years older than me. And we were both young enterprising engineers there. And we actually met because he first started working on this product called Intuit Brainstorm. And this was an idea management platform for the company. And it was actually an internal tool. And then all of a sudden, it started turning into a product idea for Intuit. So there actually was an initiative to productize this idea management platform. I turned out to be the first engineer to join Vlad on it. Set up our company's first AWS account back in 2009, back when it just had S3 and EC2. And we brought that product to market and signed up our first customers with it. It's you, Vlad, and Sergi, the three co-founders. How did you meet Sergi? So I actually met Sergi for the very first time after I left Intuit. I had started another company called Bungle. It was a video advertising network. And it was typical Silicon Valley 2011 office in a really run down part of Soma. And Vlad actually paid me a visit. I had left Intuit maybe a year by then. He wanted to tell me about the new company that he wanted to start, which was Webflow. He wanted to introduce me to his brother who he was starting it with called Sergi. Was Vlad looking for feedback on the idea? Why did he reach out to you? He wanted to just catch up and then also just tell me more about Webflow. I had known about Webflow, but it was just a very loose idea. Even at that point, it was still relatively amorphous. Sergi had just joined. They started to put more meat on the bone. And then slowly and slowly over the course of a few months, I started getting behind this idea. I started getting a little bit more well-versed in what they were trying to do. And I was like, oh, okay, this is actually something that is solving a need that I have as a startup CTO, as someone that really struggles building a website. And it turned out to be that Sergi was literally the best designer I've ever met at the time, and he still is. And he turned out to be an incredible business partner along with Vlad. You've talked a little bit about how the three of you are the perfect trifecta of skill sets of what it takes to get a company off the ground. Say a little bit more about that. So the founder market fit was, I think, perfect. So Vlad, literally the best front-end engineer I've ever worked with in my life. Sergi was just this incredibly detailed and prolific product UI, UX designer. He had it all. I think I was and still am pretty decent at backend and infrastructure. So that coupled with the fact that the three of us had a deep understanding for the problems that we we're solving for, and the fact that we each tried and failed at building websites for clients, not failed, but struggled, we just felt like there's got to be a better way to build a website in 2012 at this time. I think the combination of the skill set and the fact that we just had such bad scar tissue and lived experiences in this particular domain, it gave us the motivation and it gave us the drive to really build Webflow the way we built it. 
And so what was the core product idea back at that time? Is it very similar to what Webflow is now, or did you start somewhere different? Vlad and Sergi, I believe, wanted to build this visual abstraction over something like Django or Ruby on Rails. And if you're familiar with those products, these are full-blown application frameworks. They were very popular at the time, but the idea is, is that you wanted to be able to build these visual abstractions over the concepts of compute, the concepts of backend logic, the concepts of UI. That didn't necessarily get a lot of momentum because it was just too big. It was, again, very amorphous. Focus of that initial effort was a bit all over the place. So the team started to coalesce around the idea that, hey, let's actually just solve for the segment of the development lifecycle where the people that are involved in building for that segment are the most disenfranchised from the process. And that actually turned out to be web design, web development. It was just an incredibly old school process. I'm sure you remember, Todd, Photoshop PSDs floating around of mockups of a website. And then you have to go find a developer to translate a PSD to HTML. And there's literal services out there called PSD to HTML. And we're just like, modern web, HTML5 just came out. There's got to be a better way. And so there was a very early pivot in there, the framework on top of Rails to the website builder idea. You applied to YC at that time and got rejected initially based on that original idea. Is that right? Yeah. So Vlad and Sergi got it rejected. Uh, okay. After I joined, we got in. That was a piece of feedback that said, hey, we need to narrow this idea. We need to change this idea. I believe it was because when I looked at that initial YC application, it was just too broad. It was so horizontal. It was like, we want to reimagine software development. And I don't think any of the YC partners at the time felt like we had a really firm grasp of the precise pain points that we're looking to solve. And the funny thing is, is that now the mission of the company is to bring development superpowers to everyone, gone full circle. And 10 years later, we're still talking about the same thing and trying to do the same thing. But the second go around of our YC application was just like, okay, let's just focus on a particular segment and let's just do that really, really well. How did you make that choice of here's the segment that we want to focus on? Here's the product we think we want to build for that segment. Talk about some of those decisions. PSD to HTML was the way. Freelance web designers, they had to split 50% of their earnings to a developer to get their designs coded up. Adobe Flash had just been killed by Steve Jobs. There were no visual IDEs, so to speak, to build rich experiences on the web. There were some products that were out there, though, that were similar to Webflow. So there was obviously Dreamweaver. There was Edge Reflow. There was a company called Macaw. There were a bunch of companies that had this vision of becoming the next Dreamweaver, effectively. At the time, felt like we were kind of going into a problem that was more or less solved or attempted to be solved. But we just had a firm belief that no one was doing it really well. And we just had a feeling that even though these products have been out and people have been investing in it, there weren't products that we would use. We need to will this product into existence. And we set out to just really, really focus on web design. We set out to focus and ride the waves of responsive web design, of mobile, 
of web consolidation around HTML5s and the rise of just how important design was. We just felt design was one of those underappreciated professions that was going to be a lot bigger. I think of you guys as having massive empathy for this user, for the freelance web designer. You even mentioned the economics and how that works for them, the different products that they struggle with, how hard it is to do what they're trying to do. That part makes sense to me as real product motivation. Did you ever also say, is this a big enough market? This is something that VCs always ask. And I'm always curious the difference between how VCs think about this stuff and how founders think about this stuff. How did you think about market sizing once you had chosen that segment? Yeah, it's funny. Even to this day, we are underestimating how big this market is. And back then, we for sure underestimated it and everyone else around us underestimated it even more. I think the thing that we realized was we were trying to bring together two disciplines that never existed together. And that's web design and web development. And effectively, what we were building is a product to make that unicorn designer developer. There was no market for it. Depending on how you looked at it, that market size of that unicorn was zero because there weren't any unicorns. When we continued to evolve our product and we developed a community behind it, we were in essence building our own market. And now that market is huge. Now there's a lot of Webflow competitors, a lot of parallel products that are similar to Webflow. And I would like to think that we helped mold the thinking that a product like this should exist. And I'm really happy that there's a lot of other products that people can choose from now, because I think this is something that the world needs. We need to lower these barriers of entry to software development. So I think at the time we got so much feedback that your product is going to be way too complicated for designers that don't know how to code. And it's going to be not sophisticated enough for developers. Where was that feedback coming from mostly? Mostly investors. I think unless you were an investor that didn't know enough about the space. For example, some of our earliest investors are not technical nor designers. They're the ones that have the biggest markups on the Webflow round. So those are investors like Tim Draper, Ron Rowe from Rainfall Ventures. These are not technical or didn't have any design background, but they saw how passionate we were about making this happen. And I think that's what pushed them over the line because we actually had a lot of trouble raising. We had a lot of trouble raising in the early days. We couldn't put together much of a seed round at all. And some of those anchor investors in the very beginning have been huge for us. Okay, so you've got a ton of conviction around the problem to be solved, the user who you're solving it for, and this conviction long-term that this is going to be a big market. It doesn't exist today, but it's going to be a big one. I think now we're in 2013 time. What did the first version of Webflow look like? We actually launched in March of 2013 what we call a technology preview. And what we did was we took the core concepts of web design and web development, and we essentially built a proof of concept of how Webflow would work. We put together what's called the Webflow Playground. And you can actually go to it today. It's playground.webflow.com. We put so much energy into it. Everything was just super polished. The idea with putting together that developer preview, and this was after our first YC rejection, 
was we wanted to prove to the world that something like this could be made and that it can be useful to a broad swath of audiences, designers and developers included. And it was essentially the first version of Webflow. We put it up on Hacker News. It was number one for more than a day, something like 850 points or upvotes. And we actually got something like 30,000 beta signups just from that. Wow. So this is why I see the second time. Before the second application. So we actually took the momentum from that launch and from those beta signups and definitely put that into our second application for YC. Yeah. So how do you make something blow up hacker news like that? You've done it. I think a lot of probably founders have that question. Is there anything that you think really made that work? Well, I think the things that benefited us at that time was the algorithm was a bit more relaxed to maybe posts like this. I think it's getting more uncommon for companies originated post to rise up the ranks like that and stay there. And I think for a good reason, sometimes the audience sort of demands it. But at the time, I think the things that resonated really well was the execution behind it. This thing was fast. This thing was powerful. The code was clean. So it captured the zeitgeist of what's possible with modern web technologies today. Back in 2013, the Webflow Playground there's nothing really that came close to it in terms of how like impressive it was in terms of the actual working, functioning, holy cow, in my browser type of tool. Of course, nowadays you have incredible products now that are built in the browser. But at the time, there really wasn't much like it in terms of the power and the sophistication behind it. The Hacker News community respected that. And I think they still do. They still respect things like that to this day. I can't say our subsequent hacker news launches were as successful, but I think that first one really had all of the elements. Yeah, I think there's something to when you show people something and they were like, wow, I did not think it was possible to do this. That does create phenomenal word of mouth and real excitement. I think of products that have been able to do that. So that's amazing. How did you get from playground.webflow.com to the first release of the product? After about two weeks, we got maybe 35,000 beta signups. Waitlist signups. Yeah, waitlist signups. The YC application deadline was maybe two weeks away from that, sometime in April. After we finished that, we got all of our metrics. We put our YC application round two together. And that's when we started to really focus on the application, actually. So we actually took a break from development and we're just prepping for the interviews getting feedback on the applications and doing mock interviews, doing all the things that founders used to do back in the day, or maybe they still do. How do you prep for a YC interview? We did mock interviews. So there were actually other YC founders that would do these mock interviews. And I remember doing a mock interview and I was like, oh man, we've done like three of these already, not on my game. And during the mock interview, the founder was like, Brian, stop touching your face. Look me in the eyes. You have to look present. Oh man, this is such a grind. It's just what I'm told. I just want to build product. But we got in and then as soon as we got in, we just started coding 12 hours a day for six days a week for the next 12 weeks because we need demo day it was around the corner. Got it. When it comes to YC, I think there's a couple real teachings. The first thing is launch early and often. The second thing is talk to customers, talk to customers. And I get the sense that you actually went a little bit against the grain on both of those. 
I think of Webflow as taking a long time to build, you know, not ship early and often. And I think that you guys mostly talk to yourselves as the ideal customer. So will you talk about each of those and how your approach was a little different? It was different. I remember doing group office hours and companies in our batch were like, we signed up this customer and we shipped this feature and we launched again yesterday, numbers and revenue. And when it was our turn to give the update, we're like, we built this feature and we still haven't launched. And all the feedback was, well, you should launch yesterday. So there's a few things to your point. The first one is we just knew that in order for Webflow to be successful, we not only had to execute flawlessly on the technology and on the product, but we only had one window to convince people that Webflow could even exist because there were so many previous failed attempts to build something like Webflow that the target audience were not conditioned to even welcome a tool like Webflow. When we launched, we saw the same kind of feedback. Yeah, this tool is not going to be as powerful as they needed to be or... Oh, even after you launched, you were still getting that? From people that didn't even try it. TechCrunch comments or on Twitter or something like that. But then as soon as they tried it and they saw how polished everything was, how clean everything looked, how responsive, how fast everything was, and how integrated everything was, because you, you cannot just design a website in Webflow, you could also publish it and host it. You just do it in a couple clicks. We knew that we needed to focus on all the right details. We needed to have all the P0s, as many of them ready to go by the time we hit GA. And we just knew that if we were to launch something half-baked, we're just immediately going to be put in this bucket of tools that never could even get into the conversation. So it was just so important for us that our launch was a continuation of our playground. So super high quality bar in terms of the product, responsive, fast, has enough features to be useful. And we just wanted to make sure we clear that super, super high hurdle that we set, that super high bar that we set for ourselves, because we knew that more or less we only had one shot. It took us long to launch, but we did launch before demo day. We got it out there. We got some early revenue. And I suppose at the time, we're glad that we took our time, but also we also just sprinted. We were already working so hard. There was no way that we can spend more time waiting. We did everything we could to launch as quickly as we could have. On the talking to customers part, I know that all three co-founders are very customer-centric. It goes back to the Intuit days that we talked about. And I know that you talk to lots of customers nowadays. But I think back at that time, you were like, Sergi is the customer. So talk about the decision to build something for yourselves. Oh, Sergi. He's not just a really quirky guy. He's not just hilarious. He's a decent ping-pong player. He also is someone that knows a little bit about code. He knows the difference between display inline and display block in CSS. And our hypothesis was that there's a lot of designers in the world like him. Probably not that many, and they're probably not the majority. But we focused on that particular niche because we felt like they could become the unicorns of the future with Webflow. Everything that we did, we just wanted to make sure that it was like, okay, does Sergi need this? Does Sergi need multiple background images? 
Does he need border radiuses? What type of gradients? How many stops in the gradients does he need? We never built a product spec sheet ever because we just operated off of our intuition or what Sergi needed. And we operated off of speed, having a super high octane in the early days where we would come up with the product idea in the morning and ship it by the afternoon. And that level of velocity was required in the very beginning because effectively we're trying to catch up to the decades of HTML5 and CSS technology that was represented in code, but we had to apply a visual interface on top of all of that. Very quickly, we got up to 150 CSS declarations that were supported in Webflow. We got up to all these different types of easing animations and all these things that now designers geek out about. And we knew that some of those products might not get used a lot, but we knew that designers cared about them. I'm always interested in moments of validation. This thing is starting to work. And so you had some early validation that Sergi liked it. A big point of validation on the Hacker News launch announcement. And then how about GA? When did you first start to get the validation from customers? I would say about a week into our launch, all the founders were doing customer support tickets. And 95% of the tickets were ran into a bug or an exception got thrown. And every so often, we'd get a love letter. For example, we got a love letter from this user, Leo Zakor. He was based in Germany. And he was like, I have been a web developer for 15 years. I've been waiting for something like Westflow to come about. Let me know how I can support you. I'm happy to give you more feedback, but I am moving my entire agency operations over to Webflow. Another Webflow user, Vincent Bideau, is based in France. Similar love letter. I can't wait to see what you guys do next. This is the best tool I've used in ages. And that's when we started to know that it was like, okay, we've captured the attention of the right users because these were freelance web designers. They built sites for clients. They had been struggling with their previous workflows and tools. And there are little pick-me-ups because of all of the issues that we had with fundraising. We almost pivoted to building another Squarespace, honestly, because we're just having such problems putting together our first round and all that feedback came in. But then when we got those emails, it was just more and more validation that we're doing the right thing. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, I love the fact that you remember their names and their stories to this day. Were they paying right off the bat? Because I think you guys launched with monetization very early on. Yep. I think Leo is probably one of our first subscribers to our professional plan. It was $42 a month. Vlad and Sergi thought it was too expensive. I thought it was just right. And people bought it. <laughs> How did you come up with $42 a month? Was that tested or was that just sort of off the top of your head? We looked at comparable tools. We looked at Sketch. We looked at how much of a creative cloud license cost. We looked at Dreamweaver. We looked at the other things. So it was more so, hey, they're charging that much. Maybe we go a dollar or two cheaper, something like that. In the very early days, honestly, we priced for adoption. Back then, it was very, very cheap to host a website in Webflow. I still think it's pretty cheap. You can get online for $120 a year in Webflow, which for our type of product that's prosumer professional, I think is a really good entry point. But at the time, everything from our marketing 
to our pricing and packaging and monetization, we had to be pretty adoption centric. We didn't want to price ourselves into a corner and prevent adoption. Got it. So what other milestones do you remember from those days, 2013, 2014, the first couple of years after GA? How was the product doing? How was it growing? It was growing steadily. We never had breakout viral growth. We had a few nice articles written about us in Smashing Magazine, which was a well-known web design magazine back in the day. We had a few write-ups in Creative Block, which is another well-known write-up back in the day in the design world. But I would say we focused our growth by just building more things. With every single feature that we built, it was almost the world's first feature. And what I mean by that is, for example, we launched uh, Webflow IX, Webflow Interactions in 2014. And what it was, was it was a UI tool that helped you craft animations. Okay, so when you click on this, do this. Or when you hover over that, do that. And it gave you the ability to just bring your website to life in a much more animated fashion. And previously, people had to use jQuery or some other tools to do similar things. Our very first engineer, Dan Rogers, he came up with this idea and he was like, hey, guys, I think we should really build it. I was like, this is not going to work. No one's going to care about this. He was like, no, I think people really will. I think this is going to be really successful in the community. And I was like, all right, whatever. Vlad and Sergio were like, all right, whatever. He just went out and built it. Six weeks later, I think we had another successful Hacker News launch that started bringing us tons of customers. And it was precisely because it was the only web product at the time that gave you this type of control to build these animations and interactions on a web page without code. So all of our growth was a variant of that. Identify something that people want to do visually that requires code and build the visual version of that. All of our growth in the first four or five years came from that particular product development mindset. You guys were inventing new things here. The question that I come back to sometimes, because you had customers at this point, when you're inventing stuff that is brand new that people haven't seen or don't think will work, when do you listen to customers and when do you sort of ignore them or try to Think about what they're saying in some other way. I think founders have a superpower, which is when you know, you know. A founder's role in the company is to be able to push through the status quo and say, I have a belief that this needs to exist and we should just do it. There's no amount of rationalizing. There's no amount of customer research that will prevent a founder from executing on that person's vision. I'm talking about product founders like yourself, myself. Yeah. When you don't know, or when you scale the company to a certain point, something that I learned at Intuit from one of my mentors was root cause analysis. So a very simple framework to teach your team about how you get to the root of what your customers are saying. This framework is called five whys. So you just ask the customer why five times in a row, no matter what their answer is. So the question could be, hey, Webflow, I want you to build a WordPress plugin. We'd respond with, why? Well, it's because I want to use Webflow and WordPress together. Why? 
go down the chain far enough and then you get to the root of what they're asking, which is, well, ultimately, I want to be able to display dynamic information on my Webflow site. And that's when we're like, great. <laughs> Thanks for telling me. So we didn't build a WordPress plugin. So we went out and built the world's first visual CMS where the CMS is cleanly integrated into the visual development canvas of Webflow. And it turns out to be a much better experience than using WordPress custom fields. And it's our most popular feature now. So I try to coach my team on, let's try to walk a mile in our customer's shoes. Let's try to use root cause analysis to really understand what is the gem of the customer feedback that you're hearing. That way you can really pinpoint what actions you should take based off of it. Yeah, I love that. It's such a simple technique, the five whys. It lets you get from the stated preference that a customer has, walking it all the way down the chain to what is the revealed preference that's really underneath that. Techniques like that are very powerful and led you guys to really the underlying preference that the customer had. So 2013, 2014, 2015, we're sort of through this period now. Is there anything in those early years, Brian, that you wish you had done differently? There's so many things. <laughs> Everything, maybe. I can go down the list from product strategy to operational, to hiring, to marketing, to sales. I think the theme, though, let's call it in the wishy-washy years of Webflow, was we needed just more rigor. And we just needed to find other modes of operating past initial product market fit. So 2013, 14, 15, from our launch to the launch of the CMS in October, 2015, it was just stable growth. It was stable growth. We got product market fit, broke through 1 million of ARR, and effectively for the first seven years of the company, 70% year over year growth. Boom, 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 boom. We only started marketing in 2016, just very light content marketing and dabbled in performance. The company had kind of just settled into this groove. Okay, what are we going to do next? And we need to hire more people here. We've never managed before. So let's just promote this person that says they want to manage with no type of management experience. We didn't know how to manage. No one in the company knew how to manage. No one knew how to properly hire. The first hundred people in the company were founder-led hires. No one else hired a single person in the company outside of the three founders at that point. So I think we could have really benefited from having either an investor play a more active role to help us shape the growth of the company or having an advisor, having coach, because I think we just were settling in. And it wasn't until Excel walked through the door in 2019 that we we're like, hey, we actually have an opportunity to do something much, much bigger and put us on a trajectory that really captured the market opportunity. It wasn't until then that we really kind of realized, hey, we can be doing things differently. And so Excel in 2019, so that was your Series A? Yep. It sounds like there was a big period of time here where you guys were sort of going without VC funding. Yeah, pretty much we didn't raise any money between our seed extension in 2014 or early 2015 and 2019. And we were just growing and hiring off of the backs of revenue. And what we would do is we'd go into our SVBB account. We would check our bank balance, make sure it wasn't below a certain watermark. 
we check our incoming wires from Stripe, tally them up. Okay, is it more than our expenses? If yes, we can hire. If no, don't. That was our FP&A. Why did you make that decision? The common approach for founders in Silicon Valley is to raise the seed round, 18 months later, raise the Series A, 18 months later, raise the Series B, assuming the markets are better than where they are today. But why did you guys choose to do that differently? I wish I had a smart answer for you, Todd, but I think it was just because we had scar tissue from raising our seed round. I think it was just we had to do everything we could to be default to live in the early days because it just felt so hard to put together capital. Our seed note was $6 million cap. It was such a painful experience. Excel convinced us we didn't even run a process. Sounds like the right thing to do strap rocket boosters to the company. And we're really, really glad we did that. That's awesome. What was revenue when you raised the Series A? 16 million. We're profitable. Our rule of 40 was 60% or even higher because I think we're growing 70% and I think we're at 10% free cash flow positive. Yeah, we had a very attractive business, honestly, at that time because we're cash efficient and we had very predictable growth. And so to get to 18, 20 million, you've got to have actually a pretty mature go-to-market by that time. What was the go-to-market? What did it used to be? And what was it around that time, 2019? Like I said earlier, we treated product development as growth. Every new feature, we treated that as our time to capture more mindshare and to bring Webflow to more people. I told the marketing team, this is our ammunition. Let's not shoot a blank because we have a, such a golden opportunity to position these really unique features that the world has never seen in a way to just generate momentum for the company, signups and conversions. So for example, when we came out with Flexbox, this is 2016, we had the idea to build a game. So if you go to flexboxgame.com today, you'll actually see that we built a level by level, froggy inspired game where it gamified our product and it used our UI as the remote control to progress through the game. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. This is cool. I love that you guys have just left all this stuff up, playground.webflow.com and Flexbox this is cool. We'll take some buyers for it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so that was one of those examples. This was probably number two or three on Hacker News for a good part of the morning. Drove a ton of signups. It further chipped down the barrier that visual tools like Webflow can compete with hand-driven development. So we used those opportunities in the early days of our go-to-market to just drive word of mouth. We had very light content marketing, very light performance marketing, and we really just used it to spin the organic word of mouth engine a little bit more. That's how we were so cash efficient in the early days. The market that you're going after at this point is still basically freelance web designers. Because I know that a lot of enterprises use Webflow now. What was the journey there? Today, we have massive Fortune 500 companies running their websites on Webflow across a range of industries from fintech to insurance to consumer Fun facts, orangetheory.com on Webflow now, so you can book your class on the Webflow site. We were probably too late to include 
mid-market and enterprise customers into our decision-making and strategy. This is a point of healthy tension maybe amongst the founders, but there is a belief, which I understand, as long as we make Webflow accessible, easy to use, we're going to become something comparable to WordPress one day. And on the flip side, there's also an argument that as Webflow scales and attracts more and more customers, there's inevitably going to be more logos, really large companies and users that also need value from Webflow. There's this constant push and pull and that tension still exists in various forms today. And I think when we realize that, okay, these enterprise customers, they also are deriving a ton of value from Webflow. We actually started to think of it as just a different, not just the same product, but different go-to-market motions. And that's when we started to align the company around, hey, we can actually do both. So our company's strategy is still to do both. We still want to be the de facto web platform for freelance web professionals and agencies. And we want to attract the enterprise main.coms. It's working so far. I think that strategy is always going to have core tensions, manifests itself most often in things like pricing and packaging. But I think it's a healthy tension. And I think it's something that for as long as we can, we should try to strike that balance. Was there anything you figured out during that time period, Bryant, of how to take something that's working in the freelance design community and get it to work inside an enterprise environment? A lot of founders ask themselves that. They've got something that kind of works, it's kind of organic, but outside of the walls of enterprise. And then they, they're trying to figure out a way in. What was it for you that you found worked? So we definitely had to invest in the product for a long time. The only thing that separated our self-serve product from our enterprise product was single sign-on. We knew that it was not going to be tenable. It requires the ability to essentially find what is the concentric circles around self-serve audiences and enterprise audiences' needs. And we just build in the overlap. So as much as we can, we try to release the same features across both. Of course, there's going to be certain things that we know only enterprises care about or only service professionals or web designers care about. But I think it's our job of our pricing and packaging teams to really find what is the true willingness to pay for some of that. So now I think we've gotten much better at having a more disciplined persona and specifically buyer persona centric pricing and packaging methodology that really fits the needs of the business and the needs of our customers and meets them where they're at. But I can't say these are things that are easy in the company because for a company like Webflow, we're not a natural seat expansion type of product. Let's call it a sauna or monday.com. Those are companies that just have great seat expansion naturally. So what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to innovate our way into that type of growth for both types of market segments. So if there's certain market segments that are okay with a single product subscription, that's fine. We want to continue serving them. But for our enterprise customers or for more sophisticated agencies, we have to think about how to go multi-product. How do we want to expand our product portfolio to grow as they grow? It requires a different kind of thinking because as we talked about earlier, the first six years of the company was about pushing the boundaries of visual development and what you can do in the UI, interactions, animations, all this sexy design stuff. 
And now we have to do some of the things that may not be so sexy. And I think that's going to be a transition for us. We're going to have to think about how thoughtfully we stay on the cutting edge of visual development and become a multi-product company in the future. It's a really interesting question. The founders who are five, six, seven, eight years into their journey of when do you go multi-product or when do you try to find a new buyer? Your TAM is as big as it is what's gotten you where you are today, but then you want to try to expand that. How do you think about that? When is the right time to go multi-product? What is the right way to expand? There's so many different business books that talk about this from layers of the cake and talking about horizon one, horizon two, horizon three, to product portfolios and how you actually build buyer partner. I think for Webflow, the way I think about it, and maybe it's too simplistic, is we think about the buyer persona of our core product. You have a website. I just try to build a list of what is the second product you buy or use after the website? What's the third product? your buyer use. And then hopefully you'll find themes around some of these products that were just like, oh, these are obvious things that could be bolt-ons or add-ons. So I think it really depends company to company when you do it. And there's a lot of different ways of how you do it. But at least taking the customer centricity approach, you should put on the hat of the buyer personas that buy your core product today. And you should understand really well what other products they're buying. And then you should think about what is that overlap? What type of advantage would we have if we incorporated different types of product suites that are adjacent to our core product? And sometimes it makes sense and sometimes it doesn't. And honestly, a lot of companies don't have a clear next button to hit or click on, but it's something we're still working on. So I can't say I'm the expert at that. So one of the things, as I reflect on all of this, it really feels to me like Webflow is an expression of the way that you and Vlad and Sergi saw the world back in 2013, 2014, 2015. Pretty contrarian way of looking at things. Does that hold true today? What are the things today that you think the way that the leaders of the company see the world maybe differently than the rest of the market or the rest of the companies that are out there? I think the things that are true today that may not be true in 2013 when we started selling Webflow and building Webflow, our designers are important. They're a really critical part of the process, whether you work at a bank or whether you work at a Silicon Valley company. The world is realizing the importance of well-designed products. To take that even further, designers want to feel control over the production process as well. They don't want to feel like they're throwing something over the wall. We talked about this earlier, but the concept of a unicorn, a designer or developer that could do both. So we believe that unicorns should exist just as popular as horses and zebras. They should be walking amongst us. We feel like it's the mission of the company is to give them superpowers, give them more powerful visual abstractions over the underlying technology and give them the control to bring it to life. I love that. I mean, it's very consistent over the years, the way that you guys look at that, the persona that you're trying to serve and how you do it differently than other companies. I think it's what's made you successful. What's next for Webflow? Yeah, we want to stay at the forefront of the visual development world. We want to bring Webflow to more places. We want to expand 
its power. We want to deepen its power. We want to solve use cases that are adjacent to the web design one. Honestly, the company also needs to scale. We need to find ways of operating better. We need to find ways of becoming a multi-product company so that we can hopefully one day become a multi-generational one. Amazing. So Brian, I wanted to wrap up with a few questions that I'd love to ask founders just about what they're inspired by, where they learn from. Which people or mentors did you learn the most from in your career and, and what did they teach you? I have two people that I think often about. One is a professional mentor and then one is a family member. So professionally, my first boss at Intuit, Roy Rosen, he was the first general manager of QuickBooks Online. An Intuit alumni, one of the most prolific leaders that company has had. And he was the one that taught me five whys, how to talk to customers. I often think of him. We haven't caught up in probably 10 years, but ever since he left Intuit, he's someone that I think often about just because of how much he's taught me. He's shaped who I am professionally today. And the other person is my grandfather, my mom's father. He taught me resilience. He taught me determination. And when I was a kid, he would tell me his life story. Got on a boat by himself when he was eight years old. And he was from Taiwan and he went to Japan to study. Didn't speak a word of Japanese. And it wasn't for 10 years that he came back to Taiwan. So imagine an eight-year-old boy getting on a boat for the very first time, going to a foreign country, not speaking a single language, having to live by yourself at a school for 10 years. Oh my God, I can't imagine that. I mean, I have a nine-year-old son and there's no way he could do that. Not only that, when he came back to Taiwan, that was when the Nationalist Party and Chiang Kai-shek essentially came over to Taiwan. And he was a student and he was the leader of a student rebellion, actually, at the time. He had a warrant out for his arrest for starting these rebellions. And long story short, he lived in the jungle, hiding from the Nationalist Party, police and army, eating rats and snakes and just being a freaking boss. Eventually, he turned himself in when he realized that his family members were being held for ransom. And he's someone that has taught me so much from his early years. So I think of him all the time. I'm just like, man, this is really hard at work. Doesn't freaking compare. Wow. Amazing. Keeps me going. Awesome. So last question here, Brian. What is the best piece of advice that you've received that you actually use? Vinod said, most advice is bad advice. And I use it quite a lot. <laughs> awesome. Well, Brian, it's been so nice having you on the podcast. The story of Webflow, the company, and just your personal stories and how those things intertwine to have built something so successful that so many people love. Really, really appreciate you being here. Thanks, Todd. This was really fun. Thanks for having me.